This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Good evening. This is our special series of lessons on Jewish history and customs leading up to a uh, study of Hebrews, which I think will begin next month. Um, So what we're doing is looking at a number of items that I think will be helpful in a study of Hebrews. I hope they will be. We've looked at Josephus. We've looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And last week we started looking at some of the Jewish feasts. Um, Tonight we're going to continue looking at the Jewish feasts, but I'm also going to take a little bit of a side tour and and talk about some Jewish vocabulary. Since I realized last week I mentioned a few terms that we really hadn't discussed yet, so I thought we ought to probably go over some of the the terms with which you're probably already familiar, but there may be a few that you're not. Uh, But before we do the terms, let's let's continue on with our look at the Sabbath, which is where we ended last week, looking at the Sabbath day. As we, as we saw last week, Sabbath day is of utmost importance to Jews. And as one of them said, and more than the Jews keeping the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. Um, God's command, of course, for a weekly day of rest goes all the way back to the garden, back to the creation account in Genesis 2, verse 2. That's the basis for it. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he, God, rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had made. And, you know, I think... We've, we're so familiar with that verse, I think it, it, sometimes it doesn't startle us perhaps as much as it should. They, it's kind of startling, the idea that, that God was resting from the work that he did. And Exodus 31.17 expresses it even more vividly. Uh, Exodus 31.17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That's, of course, speaking of God. So that's the basis for why, we have, why the Jews have the Sabbath day. And although the Sabbath day, as we know, was commanded by God in the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, uh, the Sabbath day existed prior to that time. That was not the beginning of the Sabbath day observance. That was a command to remember the Sabbath day, but there had already been a Sabbath day. If you look at Exodus 16, for example, before the giving of the Ten Commandments. There you'll see how the Jews were told to gather twice the bread they needed on the sixth day so they would have no need to gather anything on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, though, was even more than just a day to the Jews. It wasn't just a day. It was a sign. It was a sign. Exodus 31, 13. Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths you shall keep, For it is a sign, God says, between me and you throughout your generations, you may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. The Sabbath day was a sign. Did the Sabbath day, did that sign point to Christ? Well, of course it did. In fact, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath, Mark 2, 28. Uh, Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And Hebrews 4, which we'll get to in the study of Hebrews, it's coming up, explains how the Sabbath points toward Christ. Hebrews 4, 4, in fact, quotes Genesis 2, verse 2, that we looked at a moment ago. Hebrews 4, verse 9, Therefore remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Therefore remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And that whole beautiful chapter talks about the rest and, uh, and certainly points 
back to the Sabbath and describing Christ. The Sabbath was a weekly reminder to the Jews that they were different. It was a weekly reminder to the Jews that they had a purpose, a special purpose. And it was a weekly reminder to the Jews that they had a special covenant relationship with God. And it was also a reminder to the Jews of God's love for his people. Deuteronomy 5, verse 14. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maiden may rest as well as thou. God loved his people. That's why he gave them a Sabbath. That's a big reason he gave them the Sabbath. And isn't that exactly what Jesus was teaching in Mark 2, verse 27? And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Now, although as Christians, we do not observe the Sabbath day, we do have a special weekly day that's set aside, don't we? It's not the Sabbath day. It's Sunday, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, Revelation 1, verse 10. Just as the church is the Lord's church, Sunday is the Lord's day, Revelation 1, verse 10. It is not our day to do with as we please. It does not belong to us. And when we treat Sunday just like any day of the week, we're profaning the Lord's Day just as much as the Jews were guilty, often guilty of profaning the Sabbath day. And what happened when the Jews profaned the Sabbath day? It led to their exile, which we've studied all about in Daniel and Ezra and Esther. The, their profaning of the Sabbath day was a big reason they went into exile. Second Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. Second Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon. That's how the book of Daniel opens up, right? where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to full score, three score, and ten years. In other words, they had not kept the Sabbath. And God said, fine, I'm going to clear you out of the land. And then the land will rest. The land will keep the Sabbath for 70 years while you're in exile. That's exactly what 2 Chronicles 36 is saying and what Jeremiah had prophesied. That exile and the reason behind it had been prophesied, though, long before Jeremiah. All the way back to Leviticus, chapter 26, 34 and 35. Leviticus, chapter 26, 34 and 35. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lieth desolate, and ye be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelled there. The Jews had been told exactly what would happen if they, they profaned the Sabbath day, and it happened. It happened, and we've already studied about that. God, though, called on them to repent. Over and over, God called on them to repent, and he promised great, great blessings if they would do so. And I think one of the most beautiful passages that speaks to this in the Bible is in Isaiah chapter 58. Verses 13 and 14. Listen as I read this and think about how we treat Sunday. We as Christians should treat Sunday, the Lord's Day, 
as Isaiah talks about how the Jews were supposed to treat their special day, the Sabbath. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Not doing our pleasure on Sunday, not doing our own ways, not, not speaking our own words, but speaking the word of God and worshiping God as we should each Sunday in the week. We're right to say today that as Christians, we, do, we are not bound to keep the Sabbath day. That's absolutely correct. But we are wrong if we stop there, aren't we? We should instead teach that although we're not under the Sabbath day of the old law, we're under the law of Christ, and Jesus commands us to worship each week on the Lord's day. And we set that aside as a special day to worship God every week. And if instead we do our own pleasure on that day, we're profaning the Lord's day. Before we go to the next feast, as I mentioned, let's go over some terms that I think we're seeing a lot as we go through this. I just want to make sure we're kind of all on the level footing here with some Jewish vocabulary. Hebrew, for example. Hebrew. We're about to study the book of Hebrews. So what is Hebrew? Well, the name Hebrew was assigned to Abraham and his family on their arrival in Canaan by the original inhabitants of the land, it seems. Genesis 14, verse 13 is the first mention of the term Hebrew. And there came one, an Amorite, who witnessed the captivity of Lot that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. Well, its origin is uncertain. It may go back to Eber, the great-grandson of Shem and the ancestor, ancestor of Abram. It may have been a name for any moving tribe. It may mean to pass over or the people beyond the river because Abraham came from beyond the Jordan and the Euphrates, so he passed over. Um, it, it could, in fact, describe any descendant of Abraham. I mean, technically, you'd be correct today to describe an Arab as a Hebrew. I don't recommend it, <laughs> but technically you would be correct to do that. Um, Israelite, Israelite. Jacob's name, as we know, was changed to Israel which means a prince with God, one who fights victoriously with God, and his descendants then were called Israelites. Uh, later, that term was used just for the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, the Israelites. Jew, that comes from the name Judah, the tribe Judah. Uh, literally, it refers to the southern tribe of Judah and also Benjamin, and the tribe that was absorbed into Judah, made up the southern kingdom. Uh, but after the captivity... Uh, and, and particularly after the northern tribes were carried off by the Assyrians, um, the term Jew came to describe all, all Israelites, all Jews, became a, a term covering all, all Jewish people, and that's, that's how it's used today. Um, Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, I'm sure you've heard those terms applied to Jewish people. Until around the early 1800s, all Jews were Orthodox Jews. Uh, they believed the Bible was a divine origin and that one must observe all the commandments. Uh, following around the French Revolution, uh, that started to change, and many Jews began to question those beliefs and, and modify various practices and ceremonies, uh, and that led to the ref what's called Reform Judaism. Um, 
And finally, a less liberal branch in the Reform Judaism broke off and became the conservative Judaism. It broke off from the Reform and didn't go as far as they had gone. Uh, in fact, the actual split between the two can be traced to a single event. The serving of shrimp at a rabbinical graduation ceremony. <laughs> Apparently that was too far and they, they broke off at that point. Now the conservative move, movement is similar to the Orthodox Jews in, 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 many, in some ways anyway. They both accept the divine origin of the Bible. Um, I don't think the Reform uh, Judaism would necessarily accept that. Uh, conservatism, though, I think uh, they apply a less stringent uh, uh, view in making their decisions regarding Jewish practices. Let me give you an example. An Orthodox Jew will not drive a car on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Bible commands one not to make a fire on the Sabbath. And they figure if I'm driving my car, those spark plugs are firing and I'm making a fire. They will not drive a car on the Sabbath. Um, a conservative Jew would drive a car on the Sabbath. Let me give you another example. If you go up north in some places, and certainly if you go over to Jerusalem, you will see in tall buildings what's called a Shabbat elevator. Now, Shabbat is, the, is, their, is, is their name for the Sabbath, so it's a Sabbath elevator, but it'll be called a Shabbat elevator. What that elevator is, at, on the Sabbath day, uh, it just operates this way on the Sabbath day. Other times it operates like a normal elevator. But on the Sabbath day, that elevator stops at every floor without pressing any button. If you're going to the 20th floor and you get on a Shabbat elevator, you'll go to the first floor, doors will open, doors will close. You'll go to the second floor, doors will open, doors will close. You'll go all the way to the 20th floor that way. You'll never touch that button because an Orthodox Jew would never close that electrical contact. They think they're starting a fire and doing that. They would never do it. So that's called a Shabbat elevator. And as you can imagine, some rabbis still feel that is a desecration of the Sabbath day. So um, that, that's just a few of the differences you can see between the Orthodox, the Conservative, and of course the Reform would have nothing to do with any of that. You can actually get a stove that is a Sabbath stove. A Sabbath stove, yeah. So that, it's it, very ingenious. In fact, I, I think if, um, as, a, as a patent attorney, I will mention there are actually quite a number of patents on the various Shabbat uh, 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 tools and things. Um, Gentile. Gentile comes from the Hebrew word goi. It's rendered nation 374 times in the Bible, heathen 143 times, Gentile 30 times, people 11 times. It's in the King James. Isaiah 1.4, ah, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, is actually referring to Israel using that word, which we often translate Gentile. But, but of course, as we know, usually it's used in a hostile sense to mean non-Jewish people. Uh, an early use is found in Genesis 22.18, in, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's the word right there. In the New Testament, the Greek word Hellenes is used to denote non-Jewish people, meaning Greek, Greek or Gentile, sometimes it's translated both ways in the King James. Torah, Torah. The word literally means to lead or to instruct. Depending upon the context, it can mean the first five books of the Old Testament, it can mean the entire Old Testament, or it can mean the entire Old Testament and all the commentaries written on it, depending on how it's being used. I think usually it means the first five books of the, uh, the Pentateuch, as we call it. Um, the Bible is generally called the written Torah, uh, but there are other works called the oral Torah. And that's the Talmud and the Agadic works. We'll talk about those in a second. 
The Torah has, has been called the essence of Judaism. The whole of Judaism's long history, in fact, is viewed by many as just exploring the meaning and the ramifications of the Torah, referring there to the first five books, the Pentateuch. The rabbis compared it to a sea, a vast hole teeming with life. A commentary called the Midrash says, as water gives life to the world, so does the Torah give life to the world. A, a Midrash is a commentary that ties moral lessons to the events in the, in the Torah. A Midrash just means to inquire or to investigate. The Jews will attach deep, significant meaning to every single word in the Bible. Now, you hear me say that, and you think, well, Eric, don't you attach deep, significant meaning to every word in the Bible? Well, yes and no. <laughs> yes, in the sense that every word and every dot and every dash is important, but they would look at a verse, such as Exodus 20, verse 1, that says, and God spoke all these words, referring to you know, the events on Sinai. And they would say, look at that word, all. God spoke all these words. They would say, you know, why did he say all there? It must have some deep, significant meaning beyond just saying he spoke what comes next. And they say what that means is that at that time, God didn't just speak the Ten Commandments. He spoke the entire five books of Moses and all the commentaries the rabbis have ever written about it were all spoken. That's what they say it means by all. And that's what I say when I mean they attach deep meaning to every single word. Very often, in my opinion, a meaning that goes far beyond what the text would support. Um, the Zohar is, a, is a, a Jewish work of Jewish mysticism, a Jewish mysticism. And there is a lot of Jewish mysticism. You may have seen the news, I don't know how long ago, that, that the singer Madonna had become a, a Jew and she was, getting into Jew, she was getting into Jewish mysticism, which is very close to a New Age type thing, and that's all she was doing. Uh, the Zohar is a major work of Jewish mysticism written in the 2nd century AD. And it says that the Torah, you know, the Torah goes through and describes what happened to Adam and what happens to Abraham and to Moses and to Joseph and all the, all the different accounts and events that are in there. Zohar says that's not why we have the Torah, that each of those needs to be interpreted in some mystical way to really discern its meaning. Uh, when I read about the Zohar, I think of, of Gnosticism, right? That there's some special secret knowledge that only the elite have. I think that's kind of the Jewish version of Gnosticism. Um, but one cannot really understand the Jews without looking at their opinion of the Torah. Um, in fact, from the orthodox religious Jewish viewpoint, Judaism exists solely to maintain the presence of the Torah in this world. That's why they're here. Now, of course, as Christians, we consider Judaism to have had a very different purpose, a very important, vital purpose, but that was not it. Now, certainly they did maintain the word of God in this world, and we're very happy that they did, and I think that was part of God's plan for them and his providence. But, of course, Judaism was here to bring the Messiah, the promised blessings of the Messiah, into the world, as well as maintain the word of God. Talmud, the Talmud. Jews believed that in addition to the five books of Moses, an oral law was also handed down from generation to generation, and they call that the Talmud. They say this oral law deals with questions that are left unanswered by the written law. For example, what type of work is prohibited on the Sabbath? The written law tells us that work is prohibited. The oral law would fill in the blanks and tell us all the different types of work that are prohibited. As we know, Jesus was often confronted with questions like that during his ministry. 
Uh, and what he was fighting was, was what the Jews were, were getting from their oral traditions. And those are the traditions of men that he refers to when he says that, that they're, that's vain, it's vanity. That's what he's referring to is a lot of the stuff that's in the Talmud. Here's what William Barclay wrote about this. All kinds of things were classified as work. For instance, to carry a burden on the Sabbath day is to work. But next, a burden has to be defined. So the scribal law lays it down that a burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put upon a wound, and so on endlessly over and over. So they spent endless hours arguing whether a man could or could not lift a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath, whether a tailor committed a sin if he went out with a needle in his robe, whether a man might go out on the Sabbath day with artificial teeth or an artificial limb, or whether a man might lift a child on the Sabbath day. These things were to them the essence of religion. Their, their religion was a legalism of petty rules and regulation. You know, you read that, and you just absolutely have to laugh out loud when you realize that people today call us legalists for saying that baptism is essential to salvation. Oh, you're a legalist. They don't have no clue what a legalist is, do they? Eventually, this oral law was written down due to the immensity of the material. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. They had to write it down. And also, persecution and exile meant if they didn't write it down, it might be lost. But to this day, the rabbis commemorate that with mourning. They are sad that it had to be written down. They would prefer it to remain an oral law. Now, various rabbis put these collections together, and there were different versions of this oral law. Uh, one of them put it together in six sections known as orders. Um, that collection is called the Mishnah, meaning the learning of the repetition. It was completed around A.D. 200. Eventually, all the oral comments about the Mishnah were also written down, and they were called the Gemara, meaning the conclusion. And you take the Mishnah and you take the Gemara, you put them together, you got the Talmud. The Talmud. M huge, a huge set of books. The Jerusalem Talmud was completed in the 4th century A.D., the Babylonian Talmud was completed in the 6th century A.D. The Babylonian Talmud is larger, about three to four times larger than the Jerusalem Talmud. And in fact, if someone today mentions the Talmud to you, they're referring to the Babylonian Talmud, if they don't specify. Halakha, that's the body of Jewish law that's accepted by all observant Jews. It's derived from the Hebrew word for walking, meaning it's the path that the Jews must follow. Agada. That was written at the same time as the Talmud. It consists of commentaries on the biblical books and insights on the, on the Torah and on human nature. The Torah lists 613 commands that Jews must keep. That means going through the law of Moses and numbering all the commands, you get 613. How many must the rest of the world keep? Seven. Seven. 613 for the Jews, seven for the rest of the world. Uh, those 613 have been divided into 248 positive commands, things you must do, and 365 negative commands, things you must not do. They've also been divided into testimonies, into judgments, into statutes, divided up into many different ways. Some of the 613 laws apply to only certain types of Jews, mainly, mainly, mainly to main, uh, perhaps to men or just to women or maybe to priests or maybe to the king. Uh, if you look at the laws that apply to everybody, at all the Jews, that's 271. 77 positive, 194 negative. 
And of course, all these are listed out, and for every single one of them, you have a volume explaining what you can do and what you can't do. In addition to the 613 commandments in the Torah, there are three other groups of laws that they follow. The Gezira, which are the uh, rules that are fences, fences set up to keep them from violating a law that's in the Torah. For example, the Torah prohibits writing on the Sabbath day. The Gezira prohibits handling a pen on the Sabbath day. It's a fence, so you don't accidentally write something. The Takana, these are rules are, are on, on rabbinic decrees of public welfare. Um, for example, one forbids a person to read another person's mail without permission. It's in the Takana. The Minhag, these are rules of, of customs that are developed over a long period of time. For example, Jewish men are required to cover their head throughout the day, even though the, the law required it during prayer and while eating. So there are many different kinds of laws, and when you study all those laws and how they, they, they took a law and they just completely just moved it and described it and every nuance, and it, that was the essence of their religion, doesn't that cast in a new light Jesus' repeated discussions with the Pharisees about their observance of the law? I mean, that's what Jesus was confronting. It's exactly what he was confronting, and it, it only got worse with the Jews after Christ because, you know, the Talmuds were written 4 A.D. and 6 A.D., 4, uh, 4th century A.D. and 6th century A.D. Let's go back to the, the, the feast now, and let's look at the next feast, which is the Passover, the Passover. The deliverance of Egypt, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, as we know, is, is, is really a central point in Jewish history and in fact, for the Jews today, I think it probably remains the central point in Jewish history um, and worship, even as Calvary is the central point in, in our own faith, in the Christian faith. Uh, it's interesting they both mark a deliverance, don't they? Um, both Jew and Christian point back to a deliverance. On the evening before the day of Passover, Jewish homes were cleansed of all leaven, Exodus 12:15. Uh, after the house was cleansed, the pots and the pans were boiled. The matzos, the unleavened bread, was brought into the house. And there was an evening synagogue service, and after that service, the Jews went home to celebrate the Passover. A place was set at the table for Elijah in case he came to announce that the Messiah had at last come. R rabbis all taught that the Messiah would come on the night of Passover. A glass of salt water was placed on the table to denote the Red Sea crossing and also to depict the tears of the Jews in Egypt. The unleavened bread brought to mind the unleavened bread that was hastily prepared when they were finally allowed to leave Egypt. The shank bone of a lamb and red wine were used to remind the families of the blood that had been put on the doorpost, the blood of a lamb to spare their life, the life of their firstborn children in Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 3, commands that an actual lamb be consumed and sacrificed, although that is generally not done today. A clay-like substance called cheriseth was made of apples and nuts. It was used to depict the bricks, the bricks that the Jews had to make while in Egypt. The father would then chant for several hours, relating the, in detail the events of Egypt and the bondage there and the deliverance there. And at the end of the meal, they would, they would, they would sing the halal, which is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. The Jews have been performing that every year for 3,500 years as they await their final messianic deliverance. 
The most important Passover celebration in the Bible, though, as we know, occurred the week prior to Jesus' death. Since the Passover meal at the Last Supper was probably celebrated early, earlier, about 24 hours early, it, it would probably not have involved a Passover lamb, since that lamb must have been sacrificed in the temple at the, at the proper time. Mark 14, 12 does mention a lamb, but I think it just indicates that the Passover was the time at which the lamb was sacrificed. It does not necessarily mean that there was one there at the Last Supper and the Passover. Uh, interesting, Abraham was provided a substitute for Isaac, but there was no substitute for Jesus. There was no lamb there, but he was the lamb of God that was about to be sacrificed for the, the sins of the world. The real meaning and deepest significance of the Passover was realized in that upper room, wasn't it? The Jews have been continuing to celebrate it for 2,000 years, but <laughs> that's, that's where it was fulfilled that's where it came to be. That was pointing to Christ, and that's where it was fulfilled. It was during those days that the Jews were offered their final messianic deliverance, their only messianic deliverance. Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus told his apostles, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus was the final reality of the Passover, of the Passover feast, and the full significance of Israel's deliverance from Egypt was unfolding there in that upper room. Jesus was the Lamb of God about to shed his, his blood for those who had been enslaved. Jesus took that unleavened bread. Jesus took that fruit of the vine, and he gave it new meaning for us, didn't he, in that upper room. And the hymn that they sang, the halal, that they sang that in that upper room, Matthew 26, 30, part, listen to part of that hymn, the halal, that they still sing to this day, the Jews do as they partake of the Passover. Psalm 118, 21 through 24, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. They sing that to this day. And the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day, what was their concern on the Passover? What was their concern on the Passover? John 18, 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall. Why? Lest they be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. They didn't want to be defiled for the Passover as they were killing the Son of God, their awaited Messiah. The Jews who were about to slaughter the Lamb of God did not want to enter Pilate's house for fear that they would be defiled and unable to celebrate that Passover. Matthew 21, 42-44, Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? They read that every Passover. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That's Jesus speaking to the unbelieving Jews of his day. The Passover and the Lord's Supper merge, merged into one complete story of deliverance and salvation. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8 tells us about that, doesn't it? The word lamb occurs 34 times in the New Testament. 27 of them are in Revelation. The lamb was personally sacrificed at that time by the head of the household. Why? 
because it depicted the personal nature of the sin. Each of us, when we sin personally, also contribute, don't we, to the death of Christ. He died for our sin. 1 Peter 1, 18-21, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received from the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Revelation 6.16, the wrath of the lamb. I think that image in Revelation 6 may be the most frightening image in the Bible. The wrath of the lamb. The wrath of the lamb. It was directed there, I believe, at the Roman persecutors. The wicked hands of Acts 2.23. But that wrath, the wrath of the lamb, awaits all who live in disobedience to the lamb of God, doesn't it? The wrath of the lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. And his perfect sacrifice on that cross was the culmination of the Passover feast that had preceded it. And every Passover that's followed it has had no meaning apart from Christ. The next feast we look at next week will be Pentecost. You know, we all know that, that the church was established on the day of Pentecost following the resurrection. But why? Why? Why did God choose the day of Pentecost on which to establish his long-promised eternal kingdom? Next week, we'll look at that question. Thank you very much for your attention. Let's, have our, let's stand and have our closing prayer. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.